Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn and the weather is so beautiful here in Wiltshire. The butterflies are fluttering around, the birds are singing, the rabbits are gambling about on my lawn. Hello from me, Richard Heller, where it's um, much the same in south-east London. Basically what he said. And ideal day for a game of cricket, which brings us to our guest, the cricket traditionalist, my friend Mr Jonathan Collett. He used to be press advisor long ago to Michael Howard. He's now a councillor in Nuneaton in Middle England. He is the voice of Middle England. He played Warwickshire under-19 cricket. He is a knowledgeable and passionate supporter of Warwickshire County Cricket Club and everything that it stands for. Welcome, Mr Collett. Morning, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Richard. And it's the skies are very blue and gorgeous here too. And the birds are singing so loudly I had to shut the windows. Now I can see you, I can see you on the Zoom here. What's that tie you're wearing, that rather garish blue and uh, red tie? It's white. red, white and black, and it's the colours of Nuneaton Rugby Club, because straight after this recording, I'm heading off to Burton, where the great Staffordshire-Warwickshire derby is taking place between Burton and Nuneaton Rugby Clubs this afternoon. Who, who has the bragging rights over the series? Traditionally, it would be Nuneaton, but uh, these right. days, I think they're relatively equal. Right. Um, I think we ought to mention that more recently, Jonathan was the um, communications advisor to Pakistan's touring cricket team in 2016. And that's partly as a result, or majorly as a result, that was really one of the most successful Pakistan tours, communications-wise, public relations-wise, of, uh, of all time. Jonathan, are you still in touch with Pakistan cricket at all? I am, yeah. I've got a huge amount of affection for Pakistan cricket and a lot of what I'd like to talk about today is the sheer joy and exuberance for cricket in Pakistan, which I think we've lost a little bit here in England. And I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've got the shirt of Mohammed Amir oh. because that series, if you remember the context, was after he'd uh, been jailed for his no-balling and that was his return to test cricket. And I think most people would agree that it was the most successful Pakistan tour of England since 1954. Certainly was, and they've just played a pretty riveting old-fashioned series, test series, haven't they, against Australia? Came out in Australia's favour in the in the end, but there was a lot of great cricket played along the way. I think I think it's wonderful, and and, and you can see the genuine thanks and gratitude of Pakistan towards Australia with the goodbye messages, which were being sent to the Australian team. So that there's a there's a really heartening feel to it, and I think. There was some wonderful cricket played during that series and Australia were really made to work for their victory. And I think that's something we probably wish we could say in England in recent times. And I wasn't in a sporting... And I thought I was so glad that Pat Cummins was... Who's emerged as a really major figure in this last... Since becoming captain of Australia. But what a sporting declaration. And I was, I was glad it paid off. It gave us a fantastic last uh, four sessions of the match. Yeah, fortune favours the brave and um, credit to Australia and credit to them for touring because it was to England's great shame that we didn't tour there to play 2020s. You will come on to that, actually, the tragedy of English cricket at the moment and the English uh, cricket board. But let's stay in happy, um, happier subject matter. I mean, we've also had a glorious series victory for Bangladesh against South Africa in South Africa. Yeah, and the fast bowling was 
astonishing. Um, Bangladesh are a fundamental part of world cricket and we need to nurture and cherish their role in that. And the star player was a relatively unsung player, and as you say, a pace bowler, which we don't normally associate very much with, with Bangladesh, Taksin Ahmed. We're sort of accustomed to a contribution from Tamim Iqbal and Shakib Al-Hassan, who are sort of world-class players. But um, great credit to Taksin for um, his role in that in that series victory. I'd like to just return to Pakistan for a minute. It's something that I think uh, signifies what's happened to Pakistan cricket over the years and why this return to Pakistan is so welcome. Azhar Ali, 93 mm-hmm. test matches, finally gets to play one in front of his home crowd. Yeah, and I don't think he played in Lahore, his hometown, until re- relatively recently. Um, he was a wonderful man. He was a very kind man in 2016. Uh, he represents Pakistan beautifully and with, with great diplomacy. And I think it's wonderful to see him thrive. And one other fact I wanted to pick out from that series, um, Nassim, a 19-year-old Pakistan pace bowler, really their best pace bowler, saw in, bi- in his biography that he went to the Abdul Qadir Academy in Lahore to finish his education. He couldn't have had a better education, could he? No. All three of us, we should say, played with Abdul Qadir. We had the immense honour a few years ago of taking a team to Pakistan. I mean, it was 2014, wasn't it? And Abdul consented to play with us. He coached us, he inspired us, and probably the happiest and most glorious moment of my cricketing life was saying, Abdul, will you come on and take the next over at the pavilion end? <laughs> and the most beautiful thing was he still had the same action. And yeah. he bowled absolutely beautifully. It was a thrill for me to bowl in tandem with him. Yeah. Absolute thrill, and I've still got a photo that I cherish of us, us together. And he still had the same passionate appeals, didn't he? Yes. As if he was playing in a test match. And in many, and we were playing in front of a lot of spectators, and they just went uh, crazy when they realised who we'd got in our in our team. We still lost. I mean, it's, the cricket's quality in, in that part of the world is so enormous that even though we have one of the great bowlers of all time still bowling extremely effectively, uh, they still beat us, the uh, the local team in, in Lahore, wasn't it? Uh, uh, yeah. The, yeah. Yes, we, we lost even to that wonderful side in um, sort of distant suburbs of Lahore. In a distant suburb, up towards the um, yeah. Indian border. Yeah, a, a local businessman had built himself, um, he'd done well in life, and he built himself a cricket pitch, and he put a mosque at the Babe and in the pavilions. It was, yeah. it was absolutely... Now, actually, going on to the... Um, Staying with the Pakistan cricket, but actually also the England series in West Indies. What we're seeing now suddenly is is a return to cricket as I was when I was a young man in the sixties. You know, you you're lucky if you've got two hundred runs in a day, and the boat, you know, more than anything over two point five runs and over was rather frowned on as being non gentlemanly. You know, you're taking risks. Um, I remember my cricket teacher telling me you didn't play the cut stroke till uh, uh, till the end of May, and then only if you'd uh, reached a score of fifty. Uh, yeah. And now what we're getting is we're returning to this kind of cricket, and I welcome it. I think the the the, re- the current series against West England West Indies has been like that, and it's generated, and so is the Pakistan series until that glorious, glorious moment when Pat Cummins. 
um, declared so adventurously. So does the Pakistan series. And what it does it do is it enables great defensive innings, the return of Babar Azam, that magnificent defensive innings, the, the emergence of Craig Braithwaite as an you know like Con- he reminds me so much of Conrad Hunt. And somebody who, the, the application, dedication is now being rewarded as well as wham, bam, you know. I think I disagree with you a little bit, Peter. I agree with elements of what you said. I, th- I think, I think the, the real joy here is the ebbs and flows of Test cricket. Mm. I think the four strips in the four Test matches you were mentioning were aberrations. There's been very few draws since 2018. And we're seeing now in the final tests of each series that when you get a more sporting track, you return to more traditional patterns. But the whole beauty and joy of Test cricket is that you have different surfaces, you have different patterns of play, you have attacking stroke making occasionally, you have um, defensive attritional cricket at other times. Uh, And the the sheer joy of this is that we're watching series evolve and progress. And and that's the absolute beauty of Test cricket. And that's what one day cricket or limited overs cricket can can never really copy it and why it's just not memorable in the same way. It's very hard to recall results of series in one-day cricket or even one-day cricket matches, but passages of test cricket are immortal. And, and whole innings, you know, sort of Hanif Muhammad's 337 yeah. against West Indies, uh, you know, to, to fight that amazing draw, you know. Uh, but, I mean, when I was, you know, the average score at the end of the day, on the first day of the Lord's Test, it would be England against New Zealand, England 204 for three, J.H. Edrich not out 95, you know. Uh, and that was a form of cricket which people loved. And it's I feel we have lost something by turning our back on that. I think you're right about that. But I think some of that is the advances of technology. So bats hit the ball a lot, a lot further and boundaries have been brought in for commercial and advertising reasons. And so I do recall, like you do in the sort of the 1980s, you'd be 270 for three at the end of play, but you'd still get vagaries and variety during the day. Oh, yeah. And, you know, attacking play and a wonderful cameo innings. But then after that, the bowlers on top. One factor that has changed since the test cricket I watched is that over rates are much lower. So, I mean, the scoring rate may have been slower in the 1950s and 60s when I started watching Test cricket, but you actually saw more deliveries bowled in a day. I expected to see 20 overs an hour, um, not 15. They barely get through today, and not all these stoppages that you get today. And uh, this is a theme we might get onto later, but it's compared to the 50s and 60s, live spectators generally in cricket are being shortchanged by, by the over eights. It's very, very good for television because it enables more commercials to be fitted in, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's to the shame of the authorities because they're not taking into account the value for money for the paying spectators and they don't really care about that. If they wanted to take action, they could do so. If they wanted to speed up over rates, they could bring in the right penalties to do so. But their priorities are, are different. Their priorities are televised rights, commercial advertising, the, the occasion itself and the branding around the teams. I, th- I think the pain spectators, unfortunately, are a long way down their pecking orders. In the last Test match in the West Indies, Jack Leach bowled, I think it was 68 overs. Yes, that's And that's it. the sort of thing that spin bowlers had to do on the dead pitches of the 1960s. Yeah. And I just wonder, though, why, thinking of the future of cricket, why, as a spin bowler, would you decide to make a living like that in long-form <laughs> cricket if you can get a damn sight more money for bowling just four overs in a T20? Well, that that's unfortunately probably the case, isn't it? But that's to the detriment of the game as a whole and to the detriment of spectators. That's only to the benefit of the pay 
the player and to the benefit of the person organising the 2020 competition. It is, but it's the dread impact of market forces, isn't it? Well, it's, I just see 2020 as cricket for people who don't really like cricket. Oh. I can't think of another sport that has reinvented itself in such a way to appeal to people who don't really like that sport. It, with different format. Can you name another sport that just changes its formats to try, try and bring in different audiences in that sort of grotesque way? I'd say in some ways the Premiership is a bit like that. Uh, but it's still the same game. It's still 90 same minutes. Game, the same game, but it's, it's, it's lost, you know, when if you're going what it's lost is the community. So you would have, you know, the players, not that long ago, the players take the bus to the ground with the spectators. They're all locals and they're linked to the community and they're paid a decent wage, but not, not, not ridiculous. Now you've got somebody who's got no links to the community and being paid something absurd, like half a million pounds a week, half of, you know, to, or much more than that, actually, to, um, uh, and they're not linked to anything at all. It's just become a commodity. You can say that you could, that the same kind of observation applies. But, the, but to give you an example, my, my team, who are passionately sport Warwickshire, indeed, I was born on the day they won the county championship in 1972. They've got five different formats playing at Edgebaston this year. They've got mm. test cricket. They've got first class cricket. They've got 50 over cricket. They've got the T20 blast and they've got the 100. Each one is a different team actually name different teams and each one will be supported by different spectators wanting to get different things out of their day at cricket and behaving in a different way. Now you could say that that's wonderful, that's amazing diversity, look at what they're doing to bring in all these different audiences but I just see it as a, a terrible sort of denigration of the game of cricket. That's true but I too I was born well before you and you you did never live through uh, the county championship of the of the sixties, which had a lot to be said for it. But it, it, it was rained on a lot. You know, there were endless contrived finishes. It was a sort of until the arrival of the overseas players, you have Gary Sobers and so forth. Suddenly arrived in the late sixties. It was a sort of, in many ways, it was a bed of mediocrity. And why would anybody go? Uh, and watch, I don't know. Well, I think you'd be surprised because it was the bedrock of the game. Look at the huge crowds it was attracted to. No, in, well, in the 1950s. The look at look yeah. at the outgrounds that were staging games at the works grounds. Look at the central part it played in life. Everybody at that stage would have been able to name the county champions to yeah. fly the pennant at your uh, ground was it was a major achievement in in a way that the the sort of the modern competitions will never replace and. We, and They've lost it. I almost see it like a sort of guerrilla war now. There's this secret army of millions of cricket fans following the county championship on the BBC and on YouTube and turning up to games. And yet the ECB are not marketing what is a wonderful historic tournament in any way whatsoever. So everybody's almost having to do this in secret. And then people get surprised when there's this huge interest at the end of the season, as there was last year when Warwickshire, Hampshire and Lancashire were competing for the title. So I think that's one of the classic things in cricket that they just didn't see as a money-making vehicle, but they didn't realise the huge value that the county championship plays, not only in cricket, but in English life. County championship was a great training ground for overseas players, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> especially especially Pakistan. Um, Pakistan became a great team, for really a winning team for the first time in the 1980s, basically, because... You know, I think ten of their their regular eleven had been trained in county cricket. 
And Warwickshire is a good example of that. That 72 team I mentioned had uh, Lance Gibbs, Rowan Cano, Alvin Kalicharan, Derek Murray. All of them went on to huge success with the West Indies as a test side in the years to come after that. Well, Lance Gibbs was pretty well established by 1972, but I get your point. But um, on attendances, going from memory, but I mean, the county championship lost attendances pretty steadily in the 50s and 60s, largely, I think, for social reasons, didn't it? I mean, there were many more competing entertainments. Yeah. People had cars. They could have more. They could do more with their. They could do more with their leisure. I think uh, some of it was the rise of the Gillette Cup and the Sunday League as well, where people could see both sides bat in the same day, but. To my way of thinking, any form of limited overs cricket is really contrived because the objective of a game of cricket is to bowl the other side out. And if you're not able to bowl the other side out and the other side can survive, then they can save the game. And that's a wonderful part of the game where you watch these great uh, salvages from the, from the jaws of defeat. Um, so limited overs has always been sort of almost an exhibition game set up to fit within the timescales of people who want to watch the game and to allow, uh, under different contrived mechanisms, such as limits on the number of bowlers a bowler can bowl or uh, limits on the you know fielders within the circle, various different contrivances to create a spectacle for people. Um, and what, what I vividly remember is that, that, that in the sort of 70s and 80s, that was put in its context. It was seen as an inferior version of the game. That's why first-class cricket was first-class cricket. Limited overs cricket was limited overs cricket. Now, because of whatever sort of modern mechanisms, you get called red ball, white ball cricket, as if they've somehow got parity. And poor old first-class cricket is forever marginalised. Yes, this is a nice... It should be first-class cricket and and the rest, shouldn't it? Red ball, white ball is a piece of a terminology, a bit like which which is invidious, a bit like weapons of mass destruction. Nobody knows what it means, but it's actually got a purpose, which is to legitimise an yes. alien force. Is what you're saying here? Marvelous, yeah. It's disingenuous. That's what it is, Peter. It's disingenuous. Yeah. But I I think you're hard pressed. I, I, you're 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 fighting you're fighting a very on a very difficult wicket, if I may say so. Um, the, you know, to say that the one-day game hasn't really enhanced cricket in various uh, in various ways. But what I do think you are really onto something is in the last few years they've absolutely thrown the county championship overboard. You know, it takes place in April and uh, September. You know, which is weird. It's uh, not correct. That I do find um, is right. I think you can have a nice balance between the one-day game. They won't uh, market the county championship. They won't slot it at times that suit people. They won't promote it. They won't give it proper media coverage. But I, I do actually think you're wrong about limited overscreen. It's not memorable. People don't remember the results. It, it's literally there to provide a spectacle and a day out for people. And uh, test cricket and first-class cricket just has an obvious predominance and an obvious superior quality to it does, but I mean, how are people going to be enticed? As it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? If you put the county, if you marginalise the county championship mm. in the way that it is done, and if you put it into months where the pitches are worse, mm. and if you take it off, there's no. They're very proud now, the ECB, that they've restored a few county championship matches in June and July, none at all in August. There's a clear, a clear direction of travel, isn't there? There's an absolutely yeah. clear direction. They yeah. clearly want to reduce the number of counties. Mm. And so they're trying to do it by default. They clearly want to marginalise it to the extremes of the season. They're doing nothing to promote it. 
when they bring in change, they say this is progress. This is, and that's an age-old argument throughout history, through all sorts of dodgy regimes. That, well, do they say this? They say it's progress to have the hundred. They say it's inevitable yeah, yeah. That, that that's modern audiences. That's the only way to attract people. It has to happen. All these kind of arguments that used throughout the ages for 60s tower blocks or knocking down historic yeah. buildings. The great phrase is modernisation, isn't it? It's yeah, a, and you can't, oppose, you can't yeah. oppose that sense of momentum. It's almost sort of Marxist in its language, but it, it's being done for very commercial reasons. It is, and you've had to you've not only marginalise the county championship, you've actually marginalised the counties themselves, haven't you? I mean, as you yeah. said, said earlier, Warwickshire aren't even playing in a lot of these competitions as Warwickshire. You know, a historic county. They're playing as they're playing as Birmingham Bears, and what are they playing as as well? It's like it's Birmingham Phoenix. I it's not can't... actually them. That's the franchise side. But yeah, the, the point you're making is hugely valid. There, there has been a backlash against it, and they've had to withdraw a little bit. But it shows modern market force. They're obviously historic Warwickshire County Cricket Club. That's their background. That's their history. That's their identity. But in recent times, because they in hock to a massive loan to Birmingham City Council. They play as the Birmingham Bears in the T20 Plus. I can't think of another team in world sport that plays under a different name in a sport. And um, they brand themselves, even on the letterheads and at the ground, as Edgebaston rather than as Warwickshire County Cricket Club. Well, this is appalling. So uh, Birmingham City Council, which I, I've been dealing with them in connection with the Trojan Horse Affair, and they come mm. up very badly and it's very destructive organisation I'm afraid but what you're, you're saying that they have renamed Warwickshire County Cricket Club effectively yes in, in T20 I mean their argument would be that Birmingham City Council saved the club because they built this huge great new pavilion with world class facilities and made sure that they hosted world cup matches etc but in the process they even changed the name of one of the ends of the ground traditionally and famously it was the city end yeah. It's now known as the Birmingham end <laughs> because they're just desperate to appease the people that they owe the money to. It reminds me of what they did in the 1960s to Birmingham City Centre. It was a great sort of civic place, wasn't it, Birmingham? Yeah. Joe Chamberlain's Birmingham. And then these hard-faced money men uh, turned up in the 60s, tore down the city centre, but, but create sort of spaghetti junctions in the middle of this wonderful ancient city. They hate... What you're saying is that Birmingham City Council hates Birmingham, aren't you? I'm and not, cricket. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I think they stick up parochially for Birmingham, but I think... Well, no, but why did they tore, they tore the town centre to shreds and now they're tearing the Warwickshire yeah, cricket... Yeah. I, think, I think you've got a very valid point there and Coventry City Council did the same to Coventry. They destroyed more half-timber buildings than the Luftwaffe did. But the wider point is that Warwickshire County Cricket Club have a responsibility towards the historic county of Warwickshire and that's encompasses many places including Nuneaton, Leamington, Kenworth, Stratford, Coventry and they've lost their bearings and they've lost their identity by sort of re trying to reinvent themselves as a city club in, in a sport that doesn't have city clubs. Now we in defence of Birmingham Council and in fact of the ECB the argument is that around the world these city franchises are the way forward Cricket has not got a uh, basic a, a, a mass following anymore. But this goes back to your point earlier on, that they're doing this by the back door and that they're doing this in a sort of disingenuous way. So rather than openly say we're abandoning counties, we're setting up city franchises, they, they rename the team in the T20 tournament and try to appeal to different 
sponsors and different audiences. To to be fair, I think there's been such a backlash that I think in more recent times they're they're trying to pay a lot more tribute to the heritage of the club and there's more sort of photographs and things like that and they've renamed MJK Gates and things. Have we still got they still got the Birmingham Bears, haven't we? Well, that's what I'm talking about. That they actually renamed Warwickshire, so they don't play as Warwickshire; they play as Birmingham. In the and T20 what does the great local journalist, our hero, who's we had the honour of having him on this show, Pat Murphy, have to say about that? I've never heard Pat speak about it. Pat is an immensely knowledgeable person. He's, He's a great wonderful man. books yeah. on Warwickshire. Yeah, uh, I, I imagine he has to, you know, be professional in his. I think we need to have it. We need to put a question out to Pat Murphy. I mean, he stands. If anybody stands for the historic continuity of the game of cricket in your part of the world, it is Pat Murphy. Are you saying just then that he was? He's been silenced. I find that hard to believe. No, no, no. I'll put it more positively. Pat Murphy loves Warwickshire County Cricket Club, but I haven't heard him speak on this issue. I just want to get it absolutely clear. Birmingham Bears are Warwickshire County Cricket Club under a different name. Is that yeah, right? and I've never known yeah. that in any other sport anywhere right. in the world. Well, um, in contrast to Birmingham Phoenix, which is a separate yeah. franchise. Owned so by the be, ECB. They, yeah. they, they claim they're not even franchises, don't they? Because they yeah. own all these teams themselves. But for an ordinary supporter, if you're a member of Warwickshire's yeah. uh, County Cricket Club, you've got Obviously, some handle on some grip on the affairs yeah. of Warwickshire County Cricket Club, and you've got, yeah. by extension, some grip on the Birmingham Bears. Um, you can't be a member of Birmingham Phoenix, can you? You can only relate to Birmingham Phoenix as a uh, as a consumer, as I understand. I it. have complete distaste for the hundred, so I don't know about buying tickets, but you certainly don't get provided with free tickets uh, through being a county member, which traditionally you'd be allowed in freely to all games on your home ground. That was one of the great perks, and to enter the pavilion at any ground your county is playing at. But it just your point is getting to the absolute heart of the whole conversation we're ha- happening today. You, I, I thought you were going to say, how, how on earth can you support all these different teams if you're going along to the cricket? But I actually think the authorities don't care. I think each form of cricket is being provided for a different audience. They're only interested in the revenue at the turnstile. They haven't got a care in the world about heritage or history or about uh, the value that the you know the stakeholders of the club have they they just want to provide a platform to attract as many people to cross their threshold as possible right but the ecb said at one point i'm sure i remember the ecb saying at one point that the 100 was going to be a competition that was going to introduce people to um it's going to be a sort of starter mm-hmm. course in cricket for people <laughs> I thought this is a very patronising bit of marketing, especially, you know, especially women and children who really didn't understand the subtleties of the long form game, but they'd be introduced to it by the hundred. It's almost a different sport. It, it, I, I see it as cricket for people who don't really like cricket, and I, and I also see it as the portrait of Dorian Gray because the, the more perverse and the more strange they create these limited over competitions, the more beautiful they actually make the real first class game and the possibility of full results. Um, I don't think they have a care in the world about joined up thinking about how all the different forms fit together. They just want to attract as many people as they can and, and to keep television revenue, which is probably even more important, higher. So that now you're taking us into the subject of the ECB, which is really the meta debate. We'll be looking at the tragedy of what Birmingham Council is determined to do, partly through the... Um, Kind of allowed to do it by the ECB, which is to ruin Warwickshire as a 
as a county cricket idea, but there's something much bigger going on, isn't there? There's a, there's an equally feral group of money grubbing creeps who don't care about cricket in the English cricket board, isn't there? I think you've nailed it there because I'd written in my notes before I came on that they, they don't really care about the game. And I think that's what we've really lost. Even if you look at the great controversies throughout history, sort of body line or the Dolivera affair, or great things we disapprove of, I think you wouldn't question the motives of the people running the game at that time. You'd think they were misguided and wrong. And... Or even racist. But there was... I was going to say bigoted, yeah. But what they did do, uh, Gubby Allen... But you wouldn't Colin, say they didn't care about the game. And I think that's what game. we've lost. They saw they were preserving it by doing these I games. saw a wonderful anecdote today that said Gubby Allen uh, basically replaced the Compton and Edgerich stance with direct replacements that were identical because he didn't want his view of the trees ruined from his <laughs> office in the pavilion at Lord. Um, but it's, I mean, that sort of shows the love of the game. I think what you have now, though, if you look at the ECB board, and I've had reason to do so on occasion, they're unrecognisable figures and they're not linked to the game of cricket. It's just a, a standard corporate board. And there's no sense and no feel. Sort of, people, sort of people might be running P&O, aren't they? Exactly, got, yeah. The sort, exactly. sort of management consultant, financial yeah. whiz kids who go in and run this and don't care about the game at all. Like the P&O no. people who sack those workers oh. and, and don't have a value in the world, do they? Yeah, that's right. And they're not custodians of the game. And in another sport like football, people like the DCMS Select Committee will be going mad about how there's no regulation, there's no love for the game, there's no guardianship of the game. Instead, in cricket, market forces run absolutely wild. This is the kind of subject you write brilliantly about, Peter. It's just become almost a neoliberal phenomenon um, where they're only driven by how do we attract more money? How do we make it more commercially successful? They're not driven by wider interests of diversity or the people they represent or by the game itself, or by handing it on to future generations because they're only temporary custodians. It is shameful. I'm going to just, for the sake of argument, defend the ECB a little bit, or not this particular ECB, but the perhaps the strategy behind it. Um, the ECB, like a lot of national cricket boards, has to wrestle with the fact, doesn't it, that cricket requires or at least long-form cricket, seems to require a very lo a large degree of subsidy from somewhere or other. It required, I mean, in the great days, the county championship. The county championship never made money. Most counties never, never made money from cricket operations alone. They needed some kind of patronage, usually from a benign, rich um, patron. Uh, that kind of patronage is gone. The game's got more expensive. They have to find some means of attracting commercial income into the game to keep alive long-form cricket and provide a, a decent professional wage structure, which cricket never had before till the modern age. They've got a genuine dilemma, haven't they, getting money into the game. I think they've been very poor at sort of nurturing the traditional forms of the game, but they've still... You can't nurture anything without money, I think would be their defence. I don't uh, accept this, and I won't... Right act as an apologist for them because okay. I think this is a deliberate road that they've chosen. It's their own direction of travel they chose. They chose central contracts. They chose to centralise the game. They chose to marginalise the counties. They chose to marginalise the county championship. They chose to marginalise first-class cricket. They put all their eggs in the basket of the 100. They might say this is the only strategy now, but they they put us into that position. They, they, they know the price of everything, but they know the value of nothing and they don't understand the value of the game that their custodians over, and that's what I think we've lost. We've lost 
you in these days, I think you'd want someone like a Mike Atherton figure who had a genuine feel for the game and that you could trust, and 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 may have to make difficult decisions that you wouldn't always agree with, but you'd always trust him to be caring about the game. I I don't I don't think there's that sense with the ECB. Yeah, on the topic of Mike Atherton, it was I was listening to him commentate on Talk Sport yesterday from from the West Indies, and he was he was he's wonderful. But yeah. actually, I'm I'm now. Um, uh, starting to see the ECB very much in you, there are political analogies. If you look at the Tony Blair's Labour Party, New Labour, so it turns its back very deliberately on the yeah. what they saw they dismissed as old the Labour, yeah, yeah. The, the Labour base, the trade unions above all, everything which the, yeah. the 20th century heritage, Keir Hardy to yeah. you know to Attlee and even John Smith were just dismissed. And with the Tory Party, you see the same turning their back, particularly over the last few years, roughly the, the, these parallels of the ECB are fascinating, dismissing the membership, going for these massive donors, any, 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 yeah. any passing Russian oligarch or uh, hedge fund manager comes in and they, they fund the party, they buy access to the politicians and they don't, the idea that the Russian oligarchs and the hedge fund managers give a damn about the future of the Conservative Party or for that matter for, for Britain, and it's the same idea going on, the same things happening in the ECB in many ways, is what you're saying, isn't it? I think I'm not going to disagree with you on that. I think one aspect that's just massively true about that is this sense that progress is inevitable, or modernisation is inevitable, or new ECB, new cricket is inevitable, and that this direction that any other thing is a reactionary or backward looking and unelectable. It's this sense of inevitability, and it's it's very hard to to rail against. I have to say, I'm surprised that um, Russian oligarchs haven't bought the, haven't tried before to buy their way into English cricket rather than um, than English football. It's it's, it's cheaper, and uh, it would get them a, a lot of branding as you know in their supposed English identity, wouldn't it? Perhaps perhaps they still will. Just picking up on presence of cricketers in uh, and people connected with cricket in the ECB. Um, I recall David Leggett, um, our New Zealand guest of some months ago, talked to us about New Zealand cricket, said that the New Zealand Cricket Board actually has a panel, an advisory panel of ex-players with a, with a real input into the, into the game in New Zealand and maybe one factor behind the rise of New Zealand cricket in the, in the last few years in all forms. I'd like to move the discussion on a little bit into how we remedy the ECB, how we remedy the, mm. the lack of representation, how we remedy this mm. sort of corporate takeover of, of cricket in the ECB and in counties. The ECB, it seems to me, has no democracy at all. It has no representation from playing cricketers, ex-cricketers, spectators, fans. Um, it's, it's a world unto itself, isn't it? There's another Warwickshire analogy there as well, actually, which is obviously county cricket clubs were traditionally members' clubs with the mm. members direct. And we had wonderful controversies over the years, if you remember, at Somerset and Yorkshire and Warwickshire with special general meetings and mm. the members in it. Warwickshire quietly changed their constitution so it has a sort of executive that runs the club separately. There's a members' committee. And this perfectly fits with Peter's narrative mm. about centralisation of the political parties. And I do think in terms of you saying... Uh, where do we get a solution from? A solution will come just like in the political parties from the grassroots, because when the grassroots say enough is enough, that's when things change. And I think that did happen with the Conservative Party and that did happen 
to an extent in Labour as well. Um, I think there, there, there will be a sense that the, the game has just become too alienated, that power's been taken too far away from the ordinary cricket watcher. And I, th- I think at some stage there will be recognition of that. It's very interesting. So what, what you're saying there uh, and your analysis as well is exactly the analysis of Mike Marquezine, which we were discussing with Siddhartha about three weeks ago in that, in, in his sort of incredibly far-sighted uh, prophetic books written in the uh, 80s and 90s, where he, he saw all of this and he said the answer what uh, answer to the corporate takeover was ultimately democracy. And that's what you're saying. Yeah, I think there's just traditionally been a lack of organisation other than directly through the county clubs. And with their power being taken away and with power being centralised by the ECB, the only way to react now is to centralise democracy uh, nationally, really. Mm, That would suggest some kind of formal representation, both for cricketers and for cricket fans. Now, there is a Cricket Supporters Association, but, you know... (laughs) How representative, one wonders how representative that is. How many people know about it? Well, these things have to start yeah. somewhere, don't they? I yeah. think that there is a plethora of organisations, but there's wonderful people like Annie Che, who you've had sure. on your programme. And there is a voice for them now on social media, and I think that gets louder. Yeah. And, yeah. and last season, for instance, I was really heartened because you had this enormous propaganda blast from Sky and the ECB and everybody about how wonderful The 100 was and how it was attracting new audiences. But the public just reacted themselves and said, no, no, this is Alice in Wonderland. This isn't really happening at all. What's happened to the ECB reserves? What's happening to the finances of the game? And I, I think as, as time goes on, that, that sort of movement will get wider. To follow on, though, I mean, they, they centralised the game. Because they took powers away from the counties. This was the ECB thing uh, in order to focus on the test team. But we're now learning that they, they're incredibly bad at managing our national team with that yeah. idiot who, who the chief coach i forget his name going with s obviously silverwood. quite yeah. silverwood is not capable of doing the job giles had to be got rid of and now we've looked at the bizarre selection decisions in the west indies which has followed the epic fiasco and yeah. national shame of the ashes series which had never have taken place that was simply driven by greed because they wanted the television money they really are revolting these people and the cancellation of the pakistan test series with yeah. no proper explanation uh, one day series yeah yeah so one day series. i t20 one day. series yeah, yeah. t20 series. i mean they, they just don't have an ethic of a morality or a sense of decency or loyalty do they like they no. show that or, but nor do they have any competence well some of it's semi-deliberate and that's the question we've got to ask as well because uh, andrew strauss came into that role and he prioritized uh, limited overs cricket, he'd call it white ball cricket. And yet the, at that stage, we were probably one of the leading, if not the leading test nation in the world. So a, yeah. an element of this almost seems deliberate and presumably commercially related as to why they prioritised it in that way and, and why they t- turned our cricket completely on its head. But I mean, it is the fact that they seem not to know how to select a test team anymore. They've lost their way and they haven't got a clear leadership from a captain. I think there are lots of playing examples, but I think structurally it's interesting that I don't think they're prioritising test cricket. I think it's become this weird niche thing where they play Jerusalem at the start of the day and have classical music and steel bands. It's become a sort of, everything's branded now. So test cricket's role in the world is to be branded as this sort of heritage niche asset rather than the central part of English cricket life. 
That's interesting what you're saying there. So you're, you, you, these new symbols we've certainly been thrust upon us, like, as you say, Jerusalem, yeah. the three lions. With, you know. That badge got altered, if you remember. The, the, the traditional crest was the royal crown with a, re, a red sort of velvet-filled in section, but they, they changed it for commercial marketing purposes to this ugly coronet. Mm. So any sense that that's the historic badge of English cricket is just not true. So there's a, a fake marketing gimmicks which are destroying the actual heritage of the game. And of course, the, there's always been that wonderful association with monarchy with, until recently, the Queen would go and meet the teams yeah. at Lords. And now they've even got rid of the crown as that. And I'll tell you who is a, a genuine lover of the game and a genuine custodian of the game is the Duke of Edinburgh. He wasn't even Because he gave them the championship trophy. He welcomed them to Buckingham Palace, the championship winners each year. He was involved with the Lords Taverners. He loved his cricket. He loved first-class cricket, and that's what we've lost, that, that sense of genuine cricket lovers involved. So these shark-suited marketing shysters are even getting rid of the connection with the monarchy. They are revolting, <laughs> people, actually. It, it does need turning from head to bottom. I think, I think they've escaped scrutiny, partly because the game's become more marginalised through not being on terrestrial television. Mm. Yeah. But it's it had a pretty good it's had a pretty good going over by the um, by the select committee from, on on culture media and sport. Do you see not good thing or bad? Is government going to get more involved in in English cricket? Is it going to stop? Is it going to wake up and take an interest in it and and its governance? I suspect not. I think they'd like to be pictured and seen at Lords or oh. at various Test matches, but I don't think there's a genuine commitment to keep in the game and I think that goes back long standing through several governments till they mm. gave away test test matches special status which kept them on terrestrial television um, I think politics has just you know abandoned cricket to the free market um, and I don't see that changing well in that case it seems to me we're in we're in real trouble because the free market is driving the game internationally isn't it and if there isn't any you know if we don't see any countervailing power uh, it's it's cricket, long form cricket is going to go is going to go on becoming more and more marginalised, and we're going to have to accept more and more. It's scary, whichever way you look at it, because yeah. even internationally, you can see the power of India, Australia, England becoming ever larger, and you wonder about the future of Test cricket and nations like Sri Lanka who love their cricket but aren't seen as central to the big things, and and the, we've talked about the terrible treatment of Pakistan. You just wouldn't get that with India, and and you get the sense that there's a power imbalance. I think my big beef, and the one thing I'd definitely like to raise in the program, is the role of the MCC, because they should be the custodians and the guardians of the game. Or there's no purpose to the MCC. It's not this sort of museum where people sit in stripy jackets and caps and fall asleep and have great big roast dinners in the long room. It's supposed to be the custodians of the game, and they were given custody of the laws for a reason. And I was absolutely shocked recently to see when the law changes were introduced about the so-called mancad and other things that there's this strange spin doctor appeared called the laws manager for the MCC. I mean, who the hell is he and on whose behalf does he speak? He was talking about progress and these things had to change and it's the batsman's own fault, it wasn't the bowlers. But who the hell is he and who gave him the right to speak? And what happened to that great role of the MCC looking after the game the MCC sort of the people who gave birth to the game and were always going to be there for it. Now, now it just seems to be in itself a branded corporate entity with identifiable features, but no 
great benevolence or paternalism towards the game. Well, it's becoming it's um, it's certainly becoming more corporatized. It is still, you know, in a sense, a more democratic organisation than the ECB, which um, to which it abdicated. Uh, well, at first the TCCB in the name of democracy. Um, it's still, in in a sense, a democracy. In the sense, if you're a member, you can vote. We could, if we um, all organised ourselves as members, vote out the the corporate takeover specialists. And um, you know we could hold all hold all these people accountable. I get um, the sense that they're desperate to protect their own future, and that they're worried that they'd be seen as an anachronism, worried mm. that they'd be seen as bigoted, all those other. So they're going out of the way to to preserve themselves and protect themselves, almost like hereditary peers. But in the process, they've lost the the, the great role they had in the game of cricket. No, I want to. I, I sense our time will be running out, but let's finish on a more. Cheerful note. We have. Uh, I have actually almost given myself sort of a high blood pressure and apoplexy actually <laughs> discussing some of these matters. But we still love the game of cricket. There must be still hope. What do you see as the um, uh, as the future of the game in a cheerful way? Which something to look forward to. The cheerful way is the game itself. It is the most wonderful game. You make the most wonderful friends. You travel to the most wonderful places, and the game will always exist. And the game itself is the most perfect set up game where you have one-on-one contests within a team game you have so people of all abilities are able yeah. to fit into it um there'll always be an interesting cricket and cricket is intrinsically english and yet it's this wonderful gift that we gave to the commonwealth and i think sometimes we we sort of become some of the fears of modern time we 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 forget those links with the commonwealth and not just the commonwealth anymore what's lovely to see it spreading to places like Germany, the Netherlands, to Afghanistan. I mean, it is such a glorious game that it's put, it has become global. There are all sorts of things to really enjoy about that. Well, there is that, but I just think we can take a particular pride in, in, in England's role in, in nurturing the game and in, in, in populating right across the globe, really. Um, I think cricket it will always just be intrinsically beautiful in itself. Uh, and genuine cricket enthusiasts are the best people on earth. If one could only empower those genuine cricket enthusiasts, we might save this wonderful game. Jonathan, it's been a really stimulating conversation. Thank you for joining us. You've now got to get off to a very important rugby match, haven't you? I have, yeah. And um, I'm speaking very close to Bosworth Battlefield, which is the uh, one of the original Roses matches was here. The final final Roses match of the War of the Roses. Uh, the ser- great series, like we were talking about. Great it. series. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope that the... Prospects of cricket are more Henry VII than Richard III. Uh, by the way, uh, Jonathan, I really enjoyed that. I got much more involved and much more angrier than I expected in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I'm rather taken aback by my strength of the emotion I showed. Um, thank you very much for coming on. Can I just say thank you so much? I'm thrilled to come on and I hope, I hope we might do some good for the great game of cricket. Well, it certainly gives a lot to the debate on the future of cricket. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Enjoy a great match this afternoon, whoever whoever wins. It's goodbye from me in a sun-blessed Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in uh, an even sunnier south-east London.